This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Calling all podcasters, musicians, vloggers, and reporters, and everyone else who wants crystal clear recording that's super portable. The Shure Motive family of microphones makes studio quality audio that's as simple as plug and play. Many of the world's top podcasters rely on Shure, and with a Motive line of iOS and USB microphones, portability is now your friend. Imagine being able to get great audio quickly and easily from your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply visit Shure.com slash Motive to start getting great audio for your content now. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com forward slash M-O-T-I-V. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Zeverman. Today, I'm joined not only by Matt Corey of BP Boston, but we have special guest Alex Spear of the Boston Globe joining us today. Um, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thanks you. Appreciate it. Um, so today we have a lot to talk about, and since we do have a special guest on, we uh, are, are lucky that we're going to be able to get all of our questions answered, hopefully. Um, so the, the first thing we want to do is uh, kind of assess where the Red Sox are right now, and I know, Matt, that's been a big concern of yours. So, Matt, why don't you start us off today? Okay. Uh, so, Alex, we saw what happened this weekend. Uh, it, it at times was exciting, um, but... I think the end result was not pretty. Um, the Red Sox lost three games to the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. Um, and so I wanted to start off by looking at sort of big picture. Um, where are the Red Sox right now as as a team, as it relates to the American League, as it relates to their, um, you know, their sort of future this season? Well, so I, I think that that's that's the funny thing, right? Like the tendency is to look at any given moment and try to connect it to those broader picture issues. Um, whereas, you know, really the smaller picture sometimes is just that. Like sometimes it's not a part of a larger whole. Uh, and so, you know, I like it, it strikes me that, you know, teams over the course of a season, this is a, this is a Red Sox team that is uh, somewhat inconsistent. Um, that at times uh, that at times looks kind of flat um, and looks kind of short on talent and that other times it looks pretty brilliant. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that one of the I, I don't think that um, either of those assessments is um, is inaccurate. Um, I don't think that either of them, you know, that a given moment in time connects them to who they are in the bigger picture. Like, really, what we know is that their ceiling is very high. Uh, their their baseline is pretty good. Um, you know, they're, they, they aren't a team that's, that's, that looks like it gets, you know, dives into troughs that aren't insurmountable. They're competitive at least. Um, 
And so, yeah, so at any rate, um, I, I think that where they are right now is they're obviously in terrific position to make it to the postseason based on the fact that they're three and a half up. They're in terrific position to win the American League East. Um, they're, you know, they, they're a team that right now doesn't have any of its star level performers performing at star levels. So um, that can be mis so essentially what we know is uh, if if they don't have their stars performing as stars, they're probably going to be in some trouble. Um, they're probably going to be in some trouble at, at a future point, you know, chiefly the postseason. Uh, if they do have their stars performing at star levels, they'll look very different than they did over the course of this weekend. So, Alex, as a follow-up to that question, um, I want to go off the, the, the stars here because you recently wrote about Bogarts and Betts uh, struggling quite a bit here, especially in the second half where Betts has been sort of expanding the zone and being um, – a very different hitter than we saw from him last year. Also, Chris Sale has been scuffling a little bit. Can you assess the performance of those three players lately and kind of give us your sense of how much we should be worrying about those guys? Uh, Bogarts is an interesting one because he's been trying to work through an injury, uh, through injuries over the course of the entire season that affect fundamentally who he is as a hitter. Um, it struck me that we underappreciate like how good Dustin Bedroy has been throughout his career because Hand injuries are ruinous, right? Hand and wrist injuries, uh, that those are the money makers with, with hitters. Um, and usually if you have hand or wrist injuries, you are in deep trouble in terms of sustaining your traditional levels of production. Xander Bogarts has spent most of this year dealing with hand and wrist injuries. He, early in the year, had a wrist injury that was incurred, I think, on a slide. Um, and he, was, he spent about a month not being able to swing uh, with, at that time, his lower hand. Um, and then, but he still managed to perform pretty well through that period, but just not hitting for any power. Uh, then he got healthy for about a month. He was performing really well. Near, in early July, you could look at the landscape of American League shortstops and say he was one of the best of them. Uh, and then he got smoked on the right hand by a pitch, and he hasn't been able to. He wasn't able to swing for a long time with his top hand. So you've seen Xander Bogarts for about half of this year swinging with one hand, and when he was swinging with two hands, he was. Uh, his mechanics had been all messed up. So I have no idea whether or not Bogarts is going to be able to restore more kind of traditional production patterns or what we consider to be a very reasonable expectation of his production uh, going forward. He's been um, among the least productive hitters in the American League since getting hit on the hand by uh, by by that pitch. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, he mentioned to me last week that he thought he was looking forward to he was hoping that the Red Sox would clinch early so that they would be in good position to give them to give him a few days off and maybe get him back to health. Obviously, they didn't wait that long to try to give him those uh, those few days um, based on what they saw as kind of the severity of his uh, of his approach struggles. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting because he's shown flashes of being good. He was uh, in parts of August. He was hitting the ball you know, very well, uh, starting to pull the ball a little bit more, which is. Um, a sign of the health of his hands. Uh, but, you know, I, I honestly have no idea what uh, what to expect from him um, going forward uh, based on whether I, I don't know how long he needs off in order for his hands to get to a healthy point and for his mechanics to get locked back in. He can be very good uh, or he can be kind of a, uh, frankly, a, a, a bit of a detriment to the lineup, at least at the plate. He's still a very good, you know, base runner, an impact base runner, even when he's dealing with those offensive struggles. Betts has gotten away from the approach that made him really good last year. Um, 
He became so accustomed to looking away, 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 away for pitches that he stopped being able to turn on balls and hitting them hard uh, to the hitting them hard to left field. He took a lot of pitches. He took a lot of uh, a lot of pitches on the inner half of the plate um, in a way that hindered his production pretty considerably. Um, that you know that's his that's his wheelhouse. Uh, so he's not attacking the pitches where he can do the most damage, and instead he's kind of um, he's kind of trying to respond to what the pitchers are doing instead of what he's doing. Um, he's working on it. He's aware of it. You know, the Red Sox hitting coaches are aware of it. Uh, but it, it can be harder to implement what you identify than just to identify it. I, I did think that yesterday, uh, that ball, he pulled down the third baseline. You might recall, uh, Frazier making a terrible throw on it after a diving stop was actually a kind of good sign for him against Severino. Um, and then as for Chris Sale, again, we're in somewhat uncharted territory, uh, with regards to the fact that this is someone who has shown uh, who has shown a bit of fatigue over the over the latter part of the season in the past, uh, whose results have been diminished um, or at least more consistent after the All-Star break than before it. Um, we're seeing some of that now. And we're seeing we're also seeing a guy who uh, against the Yankees. I, I, I do think that there's something to be said for the idea that um, familiarity against Chris Sale kind of works against him because uh, the tremendous deception that his delivery creates by virtue of its novelty, the strangeness of the release point, that oddity of the crossover delivery, uh, the crossfire delivery, that diminishes over time, which I think plays into why the why Cleveland hits hits him so well, why Kansas City and Minnesota hit him so well as teams that are familiar with him in the AL Central. Um, and, you know, I, I think that maybe some of that is working against him with the Yankees as well at this point. That's uh, that's dangerous if you're you're talking about a, a pitcher who you know if if uh, if you go long in a in a seven game series you'd be throwing three times against the same team in a short period of time. Possibly, although at the same time you know he he still has stuff that can be completely overwhelming if he depending on you know depending on how that workload is spaced out and how strong he's feeling. Um, there, I, I think that you know we've seen Chris Sale be dominant against another. Uh, another lineup in back-to-back starts, for instance. Um, I don't know that we've seen it in three straight starts, just because there's just because of the rarity of that occurring uh, yeah, for him. Yeah. But you know, I, I think that I, look, I, I think that he's you know, regardless of familiarity, like his stuff is still crazy good, right? And so he can still shut down you know an opposing lineup and uh, at any given time. But I, I think that with any pitcher. The likelihood of their being dominant over the course of three appearances in one series is less than it is over the course of two of them, right? Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I I think it's it's really easy, and, and you kind of made this point before how it's um, you can get caught up in a in a you know for for better or worse a small sample of of uh, information of, of you know team performance and end up with. You know, overreacting one way or the other. Um, you know, the the famous saying about how teams are always, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, better than they are when they're losing and worse than they are when they're winning. Um, that that seems to really apply to the Red Sox, who do a, a very good job of of uh, you know looking incredibly good when they win and incredibly bad when they lose. <laughs> yeah, well, we we like to look at things through a magnifying glass rather than a telescope, right? Yes, yes, especially. Uh, Red Sox Nation loves that, or or hates it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Self-loathing, then. I yeah. Suppose. <laughs> 
Well, Alex, one of the things that you recently magnified in an article was um, the inability that the Red Sox have to hit lefties, especially as of late. Um, and, you know, being uh, sort of obsessed with the Red Sox like I am, what I did after that was I went and examined uh, just how many left-handed pitchers all of the current playoff teams have in both leagues. Uh, and I realized that you kind of undertook the same exercise at the end of your uh, article as well. Um, but one of the things that I came away right with... Right time! <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Um, I didn't get to the NL. Uh, so I was looking at the NL, and the only team out there that actually does have a whole slew of left-handed starters is predictably the Dodgers, who are far and away the best team in all of baseball. But really, outside of that, there weren't too, too many teams that had a plethora of lefties that may, might worry the Red Sox. And especially looking at the American League, it doesn't seem to be that troubling. How worried about this should we be? Uh, as Red Sox fans here, about the the ability for the team to actually square up lefties come playoff time. I would throw the Cubs in there just by virtue of Lester and Quintana. That would be a pretty formidable, you know, potentially up to seven starts that they would be getting out of lefties. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I think you're right. I think that the American League landscape is kind of light on lefties, save for the you know the Yankees can. The Yankees can run a, at least, you know, two, maybe three out there if they wanted to. Uh, granted, it would mean going with, you know, it would be go, it would mean going with like Garcia and Montgomery in, in addition to Sabathia over, you know, over maybe a sunny gray, which seems unlikely. Um, but I, I think you're right. The most of the teams in the American League feature, excuse me, feature zero or one left handed pitchers. Uh, it would be really interesting in a short series to see whether or not Cleveland would line up like Ryan Merritt as uh, as one of their starters instead of, you know, instead of like Trevor Bauer or, you know, depending on how his health is, Salazar. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that for the Red Sox, they're they're to a degree fortunate that uh, that teams seem to be uh, seem to be do predominantly right handed. You know, Dallas Keuchel looms is an obvious uh, impressive left hander in the American League. Um, but, yeah, the the the. The lion's share of good uh, starting pitchers are right-handed pitchers in the American League. Granted, the Red Sox have made pretty mediocre left-handed pitchers look quite good in uh, in recent months. So, um, so it'll be interesting to monitor. But yeah, I, I think that uh, it would be surprising if that was ultimately like their their proverbial Achilles heel. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting thing to monitor. It's kind of funny when I looked at it, and I was thinking of uh, some of the left-handed relievers that they've hit really well, too. Araldis Chapman, and then when they had success against Andrew Miller right before he went down, um, it, it was kind of interesting just how bad they've struggled against the starters uh, when they've succeeded against some of the best relievers that come from that side. Yeah, I think that part of it is based on the fact that this is this is a team that, you know, that isn't intimidated by fastball velocity, right? Like their bat-to-ball skills play really well uh, against against high-velocity pitchers of both, you know, of both-handedness, right? So uh, with Chapman especially, when you're able to, like, when you're able to eliminate the slider, if it's not being – if it's not very effective – they, they aren't that intimidated by 101 to 103, which is uh, strange as it is to say. Um, whereas I, I do think that uh, I, I do think that particularly with some of their younger guys, it's it's a little bit more difficult when you're dealing with, you know, three and four pitch mixes from uh, from kind of carving the strike zone left handed pitchers uh, rather than just, you know, rather than just guys who are trying to win with power. So um, then I suppose that the, uh, the the proverbial nightmare for the Red Sox would be a team that featured a rotation of lefties who could all spin the ball all different ways. 
I think that's a lot of teams' nightmares. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think that you know I, I I would say that 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 seems accurate based on based on what we've seen this year to date. Um, in no small part because the Red Sox uh, the Red Sox have had their the right-handers who should be hitting lefties uh, have been woeful against them. So weird. I is do you think that that's the kind of thing that the Red Sox need to correct as a, a flaw in their roster, or is that just sort of a a kind of odd statistical, you know, blip um, that, you know, I mean, they've got, you know, bets and Bogarts and, and on and on. And, like they, they ought to be able to hit left-handed pitching to some extent. Right. Yeah. Well, they also depended a lot on, you know, on, well, so there are three falloffs that are just massive for them this year in terms of production against lefties. Uh, one of them is uh, one of them is Chris Young, who's uh, who entering the weekend was down about 400 points against lefties and OPS. Uh, one of them is is uh, Sandy Leone, who was down about 400 points from last year. We forget that he was the world's greatest right-handed hitter last year. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, and then Hanley Ramirez is down about uh, was down about 300 points. Um, and you know, that's that's a, those are massive drop-offs. I you know, Leone, I think that represents a coming down to earth. Um, but uh, but I I think that the extremity of like. I, I, in terms of in terms of bigger picture issues this year, um, I don't know whether or not there's anything that explains Chris Young's drop off. I don't know whether or not there's time for him to correct it. Uh, I imagine that by next year they won't have a fourth outfielder who's you know the, the odds are their fourth outfielder likely to be right hand a right handed hitter is not going to have a sub 600 OPS against lefties. Um, but uh, but in terms of the rest of this year. You know, I, I think you've seen flashes recently of Henley Ramirez having impactful at bats. Uh, I think that their hope would be that, you know, in a focused playoff situation, that you know he would kind of elevate his game. He has been at times a pretty impressive September and postseason hitter, um, but it remains to be seen. I, I, I think that there's it, it's a head scratcher, frankly. It's a head scratcher. I think the media might need to uh, do their duty and remind him before the playoffs that uh, he is not doing what he's supposed to against left-handed hitters because or left-handed pitchers because uh, that seemed to work pretty well for him uh, for that week or two uh, when he was reminded of that in the middle of the year. I think the Red Sox kind of obliquely tried to remind him of that by dropping him to seventh in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> that might have uh, that might have clued him in. Um, I'm going to move on to. Uh, to David Price, if I may. Um, so Price has been, uh, you know, not what the Red Sox wanted since they, uh, to, to quote Joe Girardi, um, since uh, they signed him uh, two off seasons ago. Uh, um, I, you know, okay, the premise is getting off to a rocky start. You know, I okay. think last year, the last year was pretty close to what they, it was pretty much what they wanted. You think so? Okay, uh, fair. Um, I would uh, I would say that they probably wanted a little more in terms of production. I I can see the argument in terms of you know overall innings and obviously the team was was very successful up until those last three games. So, um, you know I, I guess it depends on how you grade these things out. But um, I, I think that there is certainly an argument to be made that you know Price could have this sort of season where he misses a, a lot of time. Um, and you know, still looks good for the most part when he comes back on the mound, uh, but misses so much time that you know that it kind of it, it, that that hurts the team. But then, but you know, he comes back in the playoffs and he, and pitches well, and that's a successful season. 
Um, I, I wonder about what he's able to contribute, um, you know, to the team this year. Um, do you think he'll make it back for the playoffs? And maybe more interestingly, how does he fit into the Red Sox, uh, you know, going forward? Great question. Um, and, you know, I obviously like there's, a there's a What's that? I said, despite the rocky start. Yeah. Well, despite the rocky start, right. I think that ultimately, like the question of what David Price is and can contribute in 2017 is a fascinating one with without an answer right now. Um, yeah. No idea whether or not he comes back. I think that, you know, it's trending in that direction uh, where you would think that he would be a potential contributor. Uh, you know, maybe maybe he's activated by uh, by the last week or so of the season, um, maybe a little bit before that, but probably not much. Um, I have a really hard time thinking that he would be thinking that he could be um, thinking that he could be stretched out to be a starter in the postseason. Um, I, I just it's it's hard to imagine that you would that they would be able to build up his innings load to think that they have any any degree of of reliability. Now during the postseason, it's possible that you know maybe you slot him in as a multi-inning reliever and he shows you something that permits him to be like kind of stretched out as almost a piggyback starter and then he can be in a in a later round starting situation but honestly like that's all speculation uh the red sox are, are barely bothering to go through that exercise themselves themselves because they just want to see whether or not he can you know he can go through bullpen sessions and continue building up progressively and then they'll figure out if he can face you know, start facing batters in a simulated game situation uh, to prepare himself for the for a return to the mound. But, you know, I, I think that ultimately the calendar is going to force a question of whether or not uh, his contributions would be, you know, whether or not he can contribute out of the bullpen. Um, I, I find it hard to imagine that he would be in a position to contribute as a starter, but I've been surprised before. Yeah, no, I think the idea of him in the bullpen is, is very interesting. Um, I mean, considering you know, what we've seen from from the Red Sox bullpen, I, I think it could be fairly argued that, you know, the Red Sox bullpen has been, you know, over their heads a little bit. Um, you know, Kimbrell obviously has been fantastic and, and his performance lines up with his peripheral numbers, but a lot of the other relievers, maybe save Addison Reed, haven't, uh, don't, you know, don't look as good um, when you when you consider their peripherals, um, especially, you know, guys like, like Kelly. Um, so, I, I think there there could be a spot for for a David Price in in the bullpen, you know, in the in the seventh or um, maybe not the eighth inning, but I you know depending on how much uh, workload Reed has had and how he's looked and what the matchup is, you know, I guess lefty versus righty could play a role there too. Um, Especially consider the type of pitcher that Price was before the injury, right? He was very fastball cutter heavy. He was coming in as like as essentially like he was coming in as a power reliever for you know six six to seven innings at a time during his good run. So um, it's you know so you it doesn't take too much imagination to imagine how how he could translate as a contributor. Yeah, yeah, and he certainly doesn't have the uh, postseason negative track record as a reliever that he does as a starter too, which is kind of a funny note because Tampa Bay used him that way, I believe, early on in his career, and he was really effective as a reliever in the playoffs. 
Uh, I think that there are a lot of members of a 2008 Red Sox team that thought it was a world, a championship caliber team that would agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I kind of want to piggyback off this, thinking about the playoffs and the way that the team might start aligning things and shift the, the focus to Doug Fister, uh, a guy who in the second half has had a 3.63 ERA. Uh, on the road, he's been a 3.49 ERA pitcher. He's been greatly improved, it seems, by uh, shifting across the rubber to the first base side. Um, and has been really effective. So I guess my question to you, Alex, is, is this a guy that we need to start thinking about as part of the postseason rotation uh, instead of a guy like Eduardo Rodriguez, who has struggled, has an ERA over five in the second half? Uh, Eduardo seems to be someone who could be a, a very helpful lefty out of the bullpen, too, if he did move in that direction. How do you see the playoff rotation sort of shaking out if things were to end today? Um, and, and what do you think about the change that Fister has made? I think that uh, I think that in part um, you you can make the decision based on how well both of those guys are throwing at the very very end of the season and on the and on the the splits and the swing paths and all of that stuff uh, that you're of the team that you're facing. Um, so I think that Fister is clearly a candidate. He has pitched his way into being a, a clear candidate for the postseason rotation um, and. You would you would assume in a vacuum uh, uh, he would be that he would be right now positioned ahead of uh, of Rodriguez, but there are circumstances that could sway that. Um, in terms of the the switch that he's made, I think that it's a subtle thing, but I think that uh, there's a larger story that it that it's part of, which is that I think the Red Sox have done a really good job of maximizing the value of their pitchers this year. Um, really dating back to last year, I think that you mentioned the overperformance, quote unquote, of the bullpen. Well, I think I think that they've done a really good job of finding ways both of uh, picking the right leverage spots and of tweaking pitch mixes and of making some small mechanical tweaks with a lot of guys in order to be to bring out a considerable amount of effectiveness to them. Um, and I, I think that that's that's a pretty significant development for the Red Sox, not just now, but going forward, that they seem to be an organization that's doing a really good job of working with their pitchers. Um, to get them to be effective. And I think getting Fister has found money. Fister has outpitched Sonny Gray since the July 31st trade, since since the Yankees acquired Gray, right? And <laughs> Fister cost them nothing but cash. Uh, that is that that tells you how significant it is um, to be able to maximize the value of pitchers. And and who gets credit for that, Alex? Is that Carl Willis or I mean, who's who's part of that team that helps them achieve that? I, th I mean, honestly, I think that the the pitching infrastructure top to bottom is pretty impressive, is is pretty good right now. I think some of that goes to Willis, uh, who we should, you know, there's a decent chance that Carl Willis is uh, is right now serving as the pitching coach for his fourth Cy Young pitcher right now, which is or fifth. Right. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Um, there's, good. Uh, you know, beyond that, uh, Dana Levangi, I believe uh, the bullpen coach who's really, really sharp. Uh, was the one who suggested the uh, the move on the rubber. Um, I think that he's he's often very keyed into pitchers' footwork on the rubber and what looks like it may or may not work a little bit better. Brian Bannister, the director of pitching analytics, is is really sharp on that. He too is a big proponent of kind of finding the right rubber position for pitchers um, in order to get them to maximize their effectiveness. Um, and you know John Farrell has some pitching history there as well. So I, I think that right now there's. Right now, they have a pretty good pitching infrastructure. You know, there, there are probably a lot of people who deserve credit for that, and some of them are, aren't even mentioned. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly been uh, really nice to see uh, the, the work that they've been able to do with those units. Um, 
I want to shift the focus now a little bit to one of the uh, most interesting articles that I think uh, I've seen recently, and it was something that you wrote about the team potentially yeah. oh, <laughs> potentially fielding a uh, all homegrown lineup next year, uh, depending on what happens with first base. Uh, you look around the diamond, and first base could potentially be filled uh, by uh, possibly Sam Travis if he gets things going. Probably not next year, though, at this point. Uh, or uh, Michael Chavis, who's going to be switching uh, to first base part-time during the Arizona Fall League to see what Right, playing like. both corners, playing both corners in the AFL, but right. yeah. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on um, Chavis making that move to first base as well as Sam Travis's readiness, uh, you think. I, mean, I know that the power really hasn't been there. Um, and then kind of what your best guess is to what the Sox will do uh, with the first base situation, because Moreland has been an unbelievably valuable part of this team this year. He's been an excellent pinch hitter, uh, could be in line for another gold glove this year. Uh, lots of things that Mitch Moreland has done make him seem to be worthy of re-upping him. Um, but, you know, they have other options. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Um, I guess I'll start with Travis. I don't think that Travis is ready to be an everyday guy at the start of next year, in part because the splits have been significant. He's been really good against lefties, not so much against right. Excuse me, not so much against righties, neither the big leagues or in AAA. Um, and, you know, his defense has made progress, uh, but it's not an elite level. The power still hasn't come. There's further development for Sam Travis to, you know, for Sam Travis to undergo. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the the Red Sox could certainly consider him as a right-handed platoon guy next year. Um, but I, I think that there's there's a pretty good case to be made that he opens the year again next year in Pawtucket um, after a fully healthy offseason. Let's not forget that last season was just a rehab offseason for him uh, to try to see what kind of hitter he can become. Um, but they, they can he's part of he's clearly part of the big league depth equation as witnessed by the fact that he's up right now. So. Michael Chavis is further away, obviously, just spent the second half of the season in Portland. Um, but there there aren't any vacancies for him to get to the big leagues right now, except at first base. So I think that it's um, it's noteworthy and sensible that he is being that he's getting time at first base. Uh, I guess that the other thing you could do is explore him as in left field and maybe as that kind of future Chris Young ish consideration with a little bit more positional versatility getting infield outfield. But Chavis probably is is at least of, you know, at best case scenario for him is like very end of 2018. Uh, Travis would be to me like your your best timetable for him is maybe after a couple of months in Pawtucket next year, you could consider him uh, for the big for an everyday role if the need arose. So in the shorter term, I think that you're looking at, you know, you're looking at the Red Sox likely diving back into the market and looking for yet another short-term bat maybe that's Moreland if if one year is once again his market um you know I it's it's hard for me to see them making a monster uh you know pursuing a monster deal with a guy like Eric Hosmer uh who like I, there are a lot of things about Hosmer that I like and I think that his swing would play terrifically well at Fenway but it just seems like that profile of left-handed hitting first baseman um, who's a good defensive player is kind of replicable for less money than Hosmer is going to be seeking and certainly fewer years at a time when the Red Sox seem to have some longer term possibilities for the position in their organization. I, I wonder if it's possible to get uh, 
Sam Travis to exchange contact information with Justin Turner and maybe uh, huh. rework some of that swing path and make it more of an uppercut swing. What do you think about that? I, you know, it's something that certainly you wonder about because it's not just the uppercut swing. It's also the, you know, most of the balls that he drives are to right center. And so you do wonder about, you know, about a guy like that with the hands like that, um, seeking out a contact point that's a little bit further in front of the plate where he can start to pull the ball uh, and really lean into it. Um, it's it's a really interesting philosophical question uh, that the Red Sox have been wrestling with, I think, because they haven't really wanted guys to rework their swings fundamentally. They have um, they have been more interested in seeing guys solidify their hit tool uh, above seeking out power. Um, but, you know, in this day and age, you wonder whether or not uh, you you wonder whether or not that remains the right approach with someone like Travis who is in a position that kind of demands power. Uh, I was going to uh, switch topics a little bit. Um, actually, the well, I wanted to talk to you about, about power. But before I do that, um, I want to – so it, it's interesting when you can um, look at a move that was made sort of in totality. Like we love to judge things the moment they happen, but usually – or always, you don't have enough information to really make an accurate assessment about something. In this particular case, um, the Red Sox releasing Pablo Sandoval kind of closes the book on that, and we can look back at that move, that signing, and you know really assess it. And I'm curious, uh, Alex, because I there's a lot of um, you know Sandoval hate, I guess, uh, you know certainly on on Twitter. There's a lot of all types of hate on Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, you know, the, obviously the, the fan base really turned on, on Sandoval. Um, but, uh, you know, looking back at that, you know, 2014 off season, um, it was, was giving him that contract was bringing him in, um, you know, was it was it really a bad move? Like, is that or was that something that just, you know, maybe the process was good and, and the outcome just was bad? Um, maybe a little of both. Uh, you know, I, I guess that the big question has always been, you know, should the Red Sox have been able to get involved in the Josh Donaldson sweepstakes? Um, yeah. You know, because they, they never they've they've said consistently that they that they never really had that chance and that they would have they would have been pretty interested um, although I, I guess that the likelihood is that the uh, that the A's would have insisted on like Bogarts in a in a Donaldson deal, so um, it would have been up in the air whether or not the Red Sox would have entertained that um, as kind of the headliner of a package. Maybe Bogarts was coming off of a down year, um, but you know as, let's assume that the Red Sox that Donaldson was never made available to the Red Sox. Then looking back, they had a desperate need at third base. It looked really bad at the position. Uh, for the long haul, because Garen Cicchini had, you know, Garen Cicchini had kind of disappeared. Uh, Will Middlebrooks had ceased to be a reliable option uh, at the position. And, you know, so I guess, you know, if you don't want Brockholt to be your everyday third baseman, um, then you had two options. You had Pablo Sandoval or Chase Headley. Um, the fact that the market was where it was on Sandoval, um, you know, there were three teams that were involved at basically the same dollars, um, suggests that, it, you know, they suggest that the Red Sox weren't off, I don't think, in terms of um, his market value, in terms of evaluating how he would transition to Boston uh, and how, you know, and how his kind of, you know, commitment, how all of the kind of off field considerations of managing uh, his preparations for a year would translate. 
Um, I, I think that that represented an unknown that blew up in their faces. Um, you know, not because, but I, I think that that's an almost impossible to one to predict. Um, I think that, you know, so do I think that it was a, obviously it ended up being a, a really bad contract. Yeah. Uh, was it ill-advised? I'm not sure that it was, um, I'm not sure that it was given what the alternatives were and the fact that kind of the status quo looked pretty unacceptable. Yeah, I think, I think that is um, really solid analysis. I mean, I, unless, you know, unless you want to make the argument that, um, you know, that, that you sign Headley instead. And, you know, obviously that contract has turned out a little bit better. Um, you know, Headley is still on the team that signed him uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, did a little bit of damage to the Red Sox this weekend, as a matter of fact. Um, but, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on, uh, on that. It, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I, I get this at some point in the future, I wonder if someone will look back at, you know, the Ben Sherrington regime and, uh, you know, do, do a, a deep dive into it because um, there are so many interesting moves that, that were made and so many that turned out, you know, so polarizing, some incredibly well and some incredibly badly. And um, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion, and, and you would know certainly better than me, um, that you know Charrington was a was a solid general manager and um, you know is a, a smart guy who who had good processes and in, in some cases just got massively unlucky. Yeah, I think that you know I think that there were there was solid basis for nearly every decision that he made. Obviously, you know it there on a number of instances his approach his generally conservative approach uh, to dealing prospects and his view that you know I. He, he had a view that I really don't know which of these guys is going to turn into, you know, the impact one. So let's kind of keep quantity in order to uh, in order to yield quality. Um, right. There was a lot to that. I, I think that there's also uh, a very different, you know, there's also a very different model for success. Uh, but it is a successful model with Tave Dombrowski um, identifying these are the couple guys we believe will be successful and let's steal the rest. Um it's, I mean, honestly, it's it's really fascinating. Um, I think that Ben positioned them to be uh, in a very good spot for a number of years. Um, I think that, you know, Dave Dombrowski is the beneficiary thereof, uh, and the current Red Sox success uh, reflects, you know, reflects a lot of um, a lot of what Ben Charrington built. Um, but yeah, I, I think that he he had a strikingly unlucky run, I think, with a number of decisions and even just the timing of decisions that worked out, you know, like Rick Porcello ended up being a really good move for them, just not while Ben Charrington was the general manager. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think that he, you know, I, I think that he kind of flipped a bunch of tails in a row. Um, and it's of course, that came after he he had a a pretty extraordinary run of flipping a bunch of heads in a row. So uh, that right. was in, in 2013, obviously. So um, it's, yeah, I, I think that it's it's kind of like the where the conversation began, right? Like, you know, we, we tend to look at things, uh, we tend to look at things through that magnifying glass, the most immediate stuff through a magnifying glass while forgetting the stuff on the periphery. Um, but ultimately, all of that is part of Ben Sherrington's track record. And it's kind of stupid of people to say that, like, you know, he was just lucky in 2013 
um, and that, you know, and that the 2014, 2015 off season was, you know, kind of the, was kind of the, uh, the, the, the more accurate assessment of who he is. It's all part of who he is. Right, 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 right. Um, so Alex, you probably know the answer to this, but, um, I pulled up the, um, the Red Sox, um, you know, player or team page, um, and I've sorted it by slugging percentage. Um, if you ignore uh, Chase Darno, who in one plate appearance uh, has a 1,000 slugging percentage, and Chris Sale. What a magical plate appearance it was. Yeah. <laughs> and Chris Sale, who has uh, a 667 slugging percentage in three plate appearances. Um, do you know who the player, and I think this is just, yeah, this is just Red Sox um, at-bats, Red Sox plate appearances. Do you know the, who the player is? who has the highest slugging percentage on the Red Sox and what that is or what generally that is. Um, I'll go with Eduardo Nunez uh, for 550. Yeah, that's pretty pretty heads up. Uh, 545. Nice. Uh, Eduardo Nunez, very good, yeah. Um, Jake, how many Red Sox have uh, slugging percentages over 500? I would bet two. That is correct also. Gosh, you guys Ooh. are good. Uh, the other one is Devers at 5'11". Um, after that, the highest is Mitch Moreland at 444. And then Benintendi at 441. So it drops off pretty significantly. You've got a lot of guys over 400, not really very many guys over 450. Um, and it's particularly odd because, well, for two reasons. One is the you know this Red Sox team led baseball and runs scored last year. Um, they didn't have a problem hitting home runs. Obviously, they lost David Ortiz, but still the the talent you know is mostly still still there. Um, and the other thing is you know the league context, which is that there are more home runs hit this year than I think ever before. Um, so you know home runs are by definition easier to hit this year than ever before. And yet here we are um, with a team that doesn't hit home runs, doesn't hit for power. Um, that has led to lots of fun online speculation about John Carlos Stanton um, as as a, you know, a, a fun, certainly player to watch, um, but one with obvious warts in terms of uh, his contract and, um, you know, his injury history. Um, I wanted to ask you, Alex, um, and I understand we're getting up against it, so uh, maybe we'll let you go soon after. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but I wanted Labor to ask day, you. Man. Labor Day. Yeah, you're laboring right now. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, power on this team. Um, do they need to add a big bat like Stanton, um, or is this just a you know again a one-year sort of blip as far as power goes on this team? I think that uh, the answer again, I would I would get to the answer is probably both. Um, I, I think that there there are um, I, I think that there are a number of guys who have underperformed their power. I think that going forward, you can probably expect uh, you can probably expect more power from uh, you know just like chip away at the roster and like throw in an extra let's say three home runs next year for bets and five more home runs from a you know, from a developing Benintendi. And let's say seven more home runs from Bogarts uh, when he has two hands. And <laughs> you, you all of a sudden, you know, even Pedroia, like a couple more from him because he was dealing with the hand injuries early in the season um, that kind of uh, that wiped out his power up until he had that surge that preceded the knee stuff. Um, so, I, you know, I think that you can you can be looking rather reasonably at a middle of the pack power team. 
rather than one that's on the low, one that's on the very bottom of the spectrum. Um, but I, I still think that they could probably use, you know, I, I I still think that they probably could use that guy who is an absolute monster in the middle of the order. Um, I think that in the same way that Dave Dombrowski came on in 2015 and said, yeah, we need an ace. Like, I, I think that it's just kind of like, sometimes you don't want to overcomplicate things. Yeah, they need a guy who can crush the ball, right? And I think that, um, you know, whether or not that's Stanton or not, I, I'm not prepared. I, I'm not sure whether or not that's the that's the answer, but I would be awfully surprised if they didn't find someone who represented um, a little bit more of a reliable, you know, middle of the order source power for them next year. Um, Jake, I'll give you the last one and then um, we'll let poor Alex get back to his family. Sure. Yeah. So, Alex, um, one of my favorite exercises is to pour over the 40 man roster exhaustively and try and dis- determine <laughs> uh, who they are going to protect. And they've got some interesting. Uh, decisions coming up uh, right now everybody is up at the team that's on the 40 man aside from mm-hmm. price ben taylor kyle martin uh, henry owens and brian johnson um i guess my thing is i want to ask you uh with guys coming off the dl at some point you know after the world series coming off the 60 man that they're going to have to protect and with choices needing to be made on guys like rutledge taylor um uh, martin how are they going to protect guys like Jalen Beeks, Bryce Brents, um, activate Carson Smith? Who do you see as the odd men out on this roster? Uh, and is it a precursor that they brought up, say, uh, Austin Maddox and left Ben Taylor uh, down in Pawtucket or Kyle Martin down in Pawtucket? Like, who should we be expecting to be protected and uh, not protected when the dust settles here? I'm afraid that I haven't gone through the exercise as rigorously as you have to this point. It is one that I need to go through, uh, you know, in the future. But the obvious vulnerabilities are, you know, begin with the guys who you who you cite who aren't up in the big leagues, uh, whether that is, you know, whether that is a guy like uh, like Kyle Martin, like a Ben Taylor, um, who are kind of a replaceable commodity when it comes to right handed middle relief uh, options. Um, even even when they have some options remaining, they aren't you know they aren't three. I think that Beaks represents a far more uh, a far more rare commodity. Uh, and then you know Henry Owens, there's a big question there about whether or not they would keep him on the 40 man going forward as a kind of um, as a kind of lottery ticket. Uh, I think that you know it'll be interesting to see. I, some of these guys are going to get traded probably, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I think it'll be interesting to monitor what what Brian Johnson, where Brian Johnson is because he's out of options after this year. Uh, so is Blake Swihart. Um, so either of those guys immediately become uh, become trade candidates if you think that there's a greater chance of leveraging value from them and you aren't 100% certain of their roles going forward. Utility, they're overstocked, so that would make Josh Rutledge kind of vulnerable. Let's not forget that Marco Hernandez uh, was on the DL. They're probably going to have to trade away someone from the utility, from the left-handed utility pool of Marco Hernandez, Brock Holt, uh, Tsue Lin, um, in order to clear roster space. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of a, and I think, right, I think that Josh Rutledge would be vulnerable as well. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that, that, those are a few names that I would put out there. All right, and then uh, last one here for the AFL roster. Do you feel like there's any surprises? Um, I, you know, seeing two starting pitchers qualifies as a surprise. Sure, I think that seeing Brian Johnson 
Uh, and Henry Owens makes all the sense in the world. He needs more time to work with that new delivery. Uh, Brian Johnson is a little bit surprising, um, but uh, you know. But again, the idea that because he's going to be going out there and doing some bullpen work, it makes quite a bit of sense. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us here today, Alex. Uh, for those of you out there, you can follow Alex on Twitter at, at Alex Spear. You can follow Matt Corey at, at MattyMatty2000. And you can follow myself at, at DevJake. If you enjoyed the podcast today, you can download us on iTunes or Stitcher, rate and review us there, uh, and subscribe to the podcast if you like it. So, again, Alex, uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Labor Day and taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, come on and talk socks with us. Thanks for having me on. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, Alex. Thanks again.